A reading from Paul's letter to the Colossians. So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, seated where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now, you must get rid of all such things. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods, laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have, pre have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that as we think on this parable that Jesus used uh, to probe the virus of greed in our lives, would you speak to us and would you help us to know if we are rich toward you or towards ourselves. So meet us in these words of Scripture and help us to understand them and think seriously about how we might apply them to our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, yeah, so we have a parable on money today. That's really exciting. I know that you were thinking, hey, I want to go out to church this morning. Let's hear this parable on money. So I'm not going to start there. I'm actually going to start with sex. So... About 15 years ago, Stacy and I were living in New York City. I was a pastor at Redeemer up there in New York, and 
one of the things that I do as a pastor is I, you know, I do weddings. And uh, so that means that very often in the context of doing weddings, I get asked to, to do pre-marriage counseling, right? So usually Stacy and I will meet with couples for a number of times as we do this. And so here we are with this couple in uh, New York City. Um, and, and this was the sex talk. And uh, now this couple had a struggle in their life, and it, it wasn't what you're probably thinking. It, the struggle went something like this. Their stories of their own sexual experience were different from one another. And so one of them had sort of lived more or less pretty consistently with what he understood scripture and the teaching of the church to be, and the other, uh, his, his fiance, had not. She had, had sort of lived a little bit further away from uh, those values and those practices. And it created this sort of tension in their relationship. So whenever they would begin to talk about this, and here we were talking about this that night, you would feel the tension in the room. And he really struggled with how, how does he understand the stories and how does he think about forgiveness and so on and so forth. And so as we're sitting there and I'm thinking, well, how, how, do, I, how do we sort of probe toward the gospel here? Like, How do we sort of move into thinking about what, what does Jesus want us to learn as you prepare for your marriage? And it just went, I just felt moved to say, so do you see yourself as sexually broken in any way? And it was just one of those moments when he had not thought about that, actually. He had thought of himself as a pretty faithful person. And, uh, and so in that space, we were sort of able to just sort of acknowledge that when, when anyone in our culture sort of decides to, to come together in a relationship with one another, a covenanted relationship of marriage, that everyone comes into that space sexually broken. Because our views, our values, our practices, our understanding, the way we conceptualize even our own faithfulness is very often as shaped by the world and its brokenness as it is what we think it might be shaped by Scripture. So what we do now, as we, if you, if you ever need us to do pre-marriage counseling, you know, this is your heads up, it's just this, is the first thing we say is, look, when you come into a relationship, you come with a distorted view of sexuality. Just Period. Because we struggle to let God shape the way we think about very personal things in our lives. I think the same thing can be said about money. Um, we live in a world that, uh, inside the church world, we don't like to talk about money very often, right? If we don't like pastors to talk about money, and we really don't like to read those parts of Scripture where Jesus talks about money because that gets really tough to handle. How do we let Jesus wade into sort of the way we think about the way we live with money? The problem is, here we are with a parable that is Jesus wading into the way a certain man in Israel was thinking about money and wealth and resources and so forth. Um, and I think it's important for us to sort of at this moment just to sort of take that deep breath, you know, breathe it out fully and just sort of open yourself to God and say, I'm willing for you to sort of let this parable mess with me a little bit. I'm willing to let your story sort of shake up my status quo of the way I live with money. It's a challenging parable because one of the things you very quickly realize, as Elise was so beautifully reading it, right, is that really the wisdom that this man seems to order his life by inside of his world is almost exactly the wisdom that our culture, the best practices of our culture would say you should order your life by. Um, so whatever we're doing with this parable, the thing I think we need to recognize 
is that Jesus is really interested in dealing uh, with this man and with us with regard to this sneaky sin of greed, which distorts not only the way that we live with money, uh, but the way we actually live with our neighbor, the way we live with need of our neighbor, the way we live inside of our conceptualization of what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. And I think, right, that if we can sort of let Jesus sort of open us to the things he might be teaching in this parable. He'll meddle with us as well so that we can begin to wrestle with what does it mean for us to become rich toward God. So let's think about it. So first, where are we in this story? What's happening around the, the, periphery, uh, the periphery of this story, right? What is the context of the story? So the parable, this is the, second, this is the parable that follows the parable we looked at last week, which was the parable, right, where we learn about prayer and we think about, we learn some important things in that parable and that Jesus is teaching on prayer. We learn that, you know, God is not a reluctant father and God is not an irritated friend at midnight, but rather God delights in his family. He delights to give us the kingdom. So when you, so we seek, we ask, we knock, right? And we ask God to bring his kingdom into the world and into our very lives. And he is pleased, Jesus says, to give you the spirit. And then think about that in the context of the prayer, the Lord's prayer, that really I think is meant to structure all of the prayer that we do as, as Christians with regard to God's kingdom, right? The Lord's Prayer, which right out of the gates is urging us to orient ourselves in relationship to our generous Father. That's who we're relating to. And in the space of that relationship, we become persons and we become a community that hallows God's name, right? Which simply means that we set it apart. We, we observe our relationship with him as first and foremost, as the, the love of our life, if you will, that will order every other love in our lives. That's what it means to hallow and to set apart as holy, to treat as special, um, to let God and your relationship with him, right, begin to shift and change the way you tell the story of the rest of your life, the way you live with the rest of your life. And that includes things like, you know, desiring God's kingdom. And desiring God's kingdom includes very practical things like our need for sustenance, bread. And it includes things like our relationships and our need for forgiveness in particular. And it includes things like the reality that the human life and human communities are situated inside of a, a spiritual tug of war. So we plead with God, right? We ask God to not only give us bread and not only bring forgiveness to our relationships, but to deliver us from evil, the time of trial. That when we are in these spiritual tug of wars, which, which, right, which, which is a moment when Jesus may be offering you a parable about money. that we would find God delivering us from the sin of greed and bringing us into a space in which we're rich toward God who loves us. So this is the sort of the parable context, but almost immediately uh, what happens is Jesus is in more controversy with the Pharisees, which he seems to always get into with, right? And why is that? Because Jesus is always disrupting the status quo of their understanding of God, of kingdom, of their lives in the kingdom. And Jesus tells the disciples that, you know, if you follow me, in other words, if you align yourself with me, you will similarly find yourself in that disruption in your system, in your society, in the world in which you live. That if you begin to take seriously who Jesus is and you let him structure your life and you let him order your loves, you are going to find yourself in persecuted situations. Now, now look, we live in, in this sort of 
space of Western culture, a very, uh, a very privileged space inside of our culture. We don't suffer the way other Christians around the world suffer. But the moment that you and I begin to align ourselves with Jesus, particularly with the way we, he says we should relate to money, you're going to find yourself out of sorts with people around you. You're going to find yourself out of sorts. You're going to find yourself in places where you're having to sort of give some type of a defense of, why are you doing that? Why are you pressing these buttons? Why are you living this way? Why aren't you living by the wisdom of the status quo? And Jesus tells the disciples, don't worry. Because God is pleased to give you the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit will help you know what you should say in those moments of defense. Whether it's a big moment of defense and your life feels like it's at stake. Or it's one of those more subtle moments of defense that most of us are likely to find ourselves in if we begin to take Jesus seriously. And it's in this context that this man surfaces in the crowd when Jesus is saying, don't worry, the Spirit's going to tell you what to say, that this man sort of steps forward and he brings a problem for Jesus to solve, right? So the parable, we, be, we move toward the parable itself. So this man, right, he steps up and he wants Jesus to solve the problem that he has with inheritance, with an inheritance struggle with his older brother, almost certainly, right? Because in that culture, the older brother would inherit and sort of be the executor of the estate, so to speak. He would be in charge of sort of whatever distribution was supposed to happen, which would always be less than his distribution. And so the younger brother is frustrated in some situation. We're not brought into the, into the full detail. We're not brought into the fullness of the story. But the thing that I think we should realize is that um, when you're reading through this story, it feels like that just seems like a really weird question to ask Jesus. But it wasn't. Because in Jewish culture and in that moment, it wouldn't be unlikely for a person to go and find a rabbi who would help them solve a dispute. That's what you did. And so in a sense, this man is honoring Jesus. He's saying, I discern your authority, right? So I want you to enter this dispute with me and help me resolve the situation with my older older brother, um, the situation of an inheritance, so there's something very normal about the question. It's probably also important. Is it probably also important to, to sort of recognize and just acknowledge that you know, this is a justice problem. This is a dispute around the law. It's a dispute around what is right, what ought to happen. So there's a little bit of a, of a justice issue sort of surfacing here, right? Um, and, and, uh, and so this guy needs daily bread. Daily bread requires funds. Maybe the inheritance are going to supply the funds. It's a, it's a, in other words, this is just a just administration of the inheritance rules. So the guy's asking Jesus to enter this just dispute and probably would likely include not only the need for daily bread, but would likely include the need for forgiveness because I'm sure their relationship is a little bit disrupted. Have you ever heard of stories like that? When inheritance happens inside of families? Families that used to be together and eat together and enjoy one another begin to diverge because of who got what. Jesus refuses to wade into the surface matter of justice on this issue. So it's just kind of a curiosity, right? Because it seems like it could be a pretty easy dispute to settle. But Jesus refuses to go there, and instead he chooses a very different problem, right? The deeper problem, the hidden problem that's beneath the just division of the inheritance, Jesus is interested in whether or not greed is operative in this guy's heart. That's what he cares about. 
That's what he's concerned about. Before he's concerned about any other thing, he's concerned about this. So if you frame this inside of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus really begins to probe the third question, deliver us from evil. He begins to probe whether or not this man is losing in this spiritual tug of war inside of his life. You know, is, who does he hallow? What does he value? What's ultimate in his life? What is life? Um, and so Jesus basically begins to say, you have to sort out like, what your life is about. And life doesn't simply consist of possessions. Now, I don't know what the man might have said or why Jesus discerned that, or if it's a spiritual insight that Jesus has because he, the Spirit is operative in his life in a, in, a, in, a, in a really sort of profoundly unique and unified way, right? But Jesus seems to get that there's something under the surface. There's something beneath the surface in this guy's questions. He discerns that. And so Jesus begins to push him to think about what life consists of. It's more than wealth. Life is more than possessions. If you've been inside, look, all of us have been around people that we might immediately say, you know, for them, life is about their possessions. They're not that fun to be around, folks. Right? Because there's a shallowness to that person, right? You want them, maybe you're the kind of person that you want to say, it's about relationships. It's about real people. How do you define what life is about? And so even if you're a person who says, well, family over money, you and I often find ourselves in just this really strange and distorted way of relating to wealth as a means toward our happiness. And that's what Jesus begins to wrestle with. So think about this hidden sin for just a minute. You see, if greed is operative in this man's life, let me ask you this question. What is the point of his inheritance? If greed is the way he's going to structure and order the way he lives with an inheritance, what's the point of it? How will he live with the increased possessions, the, po- the property or the wealth or whatever? Will he live with it justly or will he live with it selfishly? Will he be rich toward God or will he be rich toward himself, right? Will his life follow the status quo of the world in which he lives, or will it begin to follow this realignment with the God that he's actually in personal conversation with this very moment? Jesus. So Jesus does what Jesus does when we ask him our questions about our lives and meaning and the questions we want him to resolve. He very often, if you sit with him, he begins to probe more deeply at the stuff of the heart that begins to unearth how you're living with him, how you think about his presence in your life. And so Jesus does that here. He shakes up the the, the, the take-it-for-granted wisdom of his world that he's seeking to sort of resolve and live within, and Jesus tells him this story, right, Uh, which is a way of inviting him into a space of deeper reflection. When you listen to a story, you're not just parsing out laws. You're thinking about a narrative. You're thinking about a situation in which you have to imagine yourself inside the story. And so Jesus is asking this man to sort of imagine himself inside of this story. So what is the story? Well, there was a man, and he had a really productive field. He was a rich man, and he had a really productive field. Commentators say this about that line. It's interesting that we might immediately think, well, this guy was such a hard worker. He was the bomb. When it comes to farming, he had it down. He knew 
when to sow. He knew when to reap. And it is just thriving. It is working for him, right? So we imagine that wealth follows our own productivity. It follows, right? It follows our hard work, our efforts. But the way Luke is telling the story, the way Jesus is telling the story, really, it seems to rather insinuate that this was a rich man who had a really productive field. He just had a really productive field. And so the question for us in that space is, so what if you are lucky? I know we don't believe in luck, but let's say you're lucky and you've got a really productive job. You've landed in one of those spaces and it is just working for you. That's the kind of situation we're in. I think this is a good question for us to ask ourselves because we live in a really individualistic culture. And one of the things that happens to us inside of an individualistic culture is we forget that we're part of communities. In other words, we begin to forget the accident of our birth. Have you ever thought about that? We are sitting in a room of highly privileged people that live in a very privileged community. That's us. And how did you get here? The accident of your birth. Relationships that you had nothing to do with that opened doors for you, that opened opportunity for you, that would not otherwise be opened. In other words, life is gift and grace, always. Gift and grace. This man had a really productive field. The orientation of our hearts is really important to God. We live inside of our privileged demographic And it's important for us to sort of just acknowledge the reality that so much of what we have in life, we've done nothing to actually achieve for ourselves. Our parents did something. Our parents may have opened some doors for us. You stepped through a door. You made some new connections. And you've sort of made yourself into this space of life, intellectually, economically, positionally, vocationally. Do you understand the gift and the grace of God that is operating inside of our lives? So this man has a dilemma, and the question is very simple. What will you do with this thriving field of yours, <laughs> you know? Now, if you're praying the Lord's Prayer, and you get to that line, give us today our daily bread, you're one of those persons in that community that has a lot of daily bread, basically, But you're living inside of a network of community, a set of relationships where other people may not have a lot of daily bread. But if you're thinking about daily bread, maybe you're not just thinking about your own needs for daily bread, but you're thinking about your connectivity to the community as a whole. Here's one of the problems for us, I think, in our society. And that is that we live so, we live so separately that sometimes we're, we're not in as much proximity to need as maybe we need to be. And so we're unaware of the suffering, even inside of the body of Christ. We just sort of live in our bubble. When we pray for daily bread, we're meant to be cognizant of the world in which we live and the needs of the world in which we live. Surely someone in this man's community could use some of that extra grain. But this man, as he's thinking to himself, he says, you know, I will say to myself, soul, self, here's what I will do. I'm going to tear down these barns. I'm going to build some other barns. And the bigger barns are going to be able to hold more more grain. And the benefit of that is that I will be able to retire from life early and eat, drink, and be merry. Now, 
retirement. What a challenging topic for us, right? Um, when you hit your 50s, at least, and maybe beforehand, some of you are planners, and so you're thinking about this far earlier than your 50s, but say you hit your 50s. When Stacy and I hit our 50s, one of the things we did is we sort of had a financial advisor, and the financial advisor said, you know, I don't know what I'm doing when I have managed my retirement account, you know, that is there. I have no idea what I'm doing, so I'm going to talk to this financial advisor. And the moment you begin to talk to a financial advisor, it goes like this. Okay, Tuck, we're going to gather all your data, and then we're going to sort of, we're going to plug in your expenses, and we're going to plug in your savings. We're going to put it into this really fancy calculator that I've got on my computer. And here's what the calculator is going to basically tell you. Is your barn big enough? Is there enough grain inside your barn so that you might be able to retire, not early probably, Tuck, but retire? And then once you retire... Is the grain going to last until you're predicted to die? I mean, it's just really grim space, right? Here you are having these really vulnerable financial conversations with a guy who's trying to help you figure out if you're going to be able to retire and if your retirement's going to outlast you. So maybe there's an inheritance for your kids to squabble over. Probably not. Will your grain run out? It's not that looking at those things is illegitimate or foolish. I don't want to suggest that because I look at it, and I'll continue to look at it, by the way. (laughs) It's not that it's foolish. It's just that there's a more important question that Jesus is concerned with. And it's just very simply this. Are you rich toward God? I mean, it's just simply that. Are you rich toward God? In other words, does does your relationship to a God who is generously present to your life and who tells you that your life is embedded inside of his kingdom and will always be embedded inside of his kingdom, that he is always with you to the very end, and that in the end you will enjoy the benefit of life with him forever. Does that reality structure and shape the way you live with your relative wealth? Does it change the way you relate to your possessions? That's what Jesus is concerned about. He doesn't want us to live in a world of scarcity where we're just always terrified. He wants us to live in a world in which God is present because he is. And he loves you. And he delights with you and he puts you inside the body of Christ where other people are praying for daily bread, which includes, by the way, your daily bread. He wants us to think about what would it look like for us to live in this really robust and beautiful way inside of the body of Christ like that. Are we rich toward God? I don't think Jesus had anything against this man's initial uh, inheritance question at all. I think it was a totally legitimate question to be asking. It was a totally legitimate concern. But the more important thing is about being rich toward God. And Jesus wanted to get there first because if the guy is to get an inheritance, the question is how will he live with it? Will the relationship with Jesus alter the way he lives life inside of his world? Is there some emerging alignment with God himself, with life as part of his family and his kingdom, right? That's what is interesting to Jesus. That's what he desires for us because guess what? That is how Jesus makes the kingdom visible to other people. 
In the story, God shows up as a character in this story. Um, I think it's the only parable in which God is actually part of the story, right? Uh, He's a character in the story itself. And when he shows up, there's judgment, right? He declares that this man is living really foolishly and not wise. Even though the man imagines himself to just be living wisely by the economic rules of his day. Jesus says not so because he's falsely aligned his life and his own sense of meaning and purpose and value in life, his safety, his security with his barns of grain, his wealth, and not God himself. The man is rich toward himself, not God, and so not toward other people either. Rather, the man in the story, right, he lives by the economic wisdom of his day, not the presence of a generous God that delights and provides for him, that is present to him. One commentator, one commentator that I read put it this way, to be rich toward God is to live productively, reflecting on the character of God in all of our various relationships. Goes on to say that within the Christian tradition, this means that we live with our goods as gift, not just for ourselves, but for the world and for the greater good of our life with God and our life with one another. In other words, as Christians, we're called to let our love of God and his love for us order every other love in our lives. And that means we'll always find ourselves living open-handedly with all other dimensions of our lives. We'll stop grasping. Greed is the opposite of Jesus' way of living toward us. There's that beautiful text in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, verse 9, where the Apostle Paul just simply reminds the church, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The picture that Jesus reveals of the Father is of a God who is just lavishly leveraging all of his wealth toward our well-being toward our inclusion in his kingdom, toward the forgiveness of sins, toward the the repair of our lives as sinners, toward amendment of life so that we begin to reflect his character in the world differently than we did before. So how do we become rich toward God? And the answer is just what Paul said. It's the grace of Jesus, right? It's who reveals to us a God who leverages his wealth towards us. And the moment you begin to sort of taste that, you value that, and you let his love for you reshape you, what does it do? It shakes up the status quo in your life. The status quo with the way you live with your sexuality. The status quo with the way you live with your money. The status quo with the way you live with broken relationships. The status quo with the way you go into work. And just on and on and on and on. Jesus is a powerful presence, a relationship inside of our lives that is meant to change the way we live and think about life in this world. Just after this parable, Jesus is in that famous space where he just so beautifully and often, it's an often quoted passage, right, Um, where, where Jesus says, look, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat what you'll set on the table. And don't worry about your body, what you're going to wear. In other words, how you're going to dress your body up. 
Don't worry about these things because God is with you. God cares for the ravens, the birds of the air. And God cares for the lilies of the field. We're back in the field. He cares about all of the earth. That's who God is. And he is pleased to give you his kingdom. He is pleased to give you his kingdom. As you pray for daily bread and you pray for the forgiveness of sins and you pray for deliverance of Eve from evil, he is pleased to give you the spirit. God cares about you. And then Jesus closes that little section. He says, so what should you do? He says, sell your possessions and give alms. In other words, he's talking to people whose possessions were the way they saved, right? It was their bank account, in essence. It was like they were storing up, in a sense, right, through their savings, uh, through their possessions. And so Jesus says, so what should you do in light of this parable and in light of this fact that I'm saying, don't worry, but recognize God's gift of the kingdom? What does that mean for the way you live with your possessions? It means you're going to sell them sometimes. And it means that when you sell them, you're you're going to liquidate so that you can give so that you can share, so that you can be rich toward God and rich toward others, living and acting as if he's real and present in your life and in your world. And he just says simply this, because where your treasure is, there is your heart. And this is why so often when we talk about money or giving or stewardship, you know, you, you might often hear, and if you, if you read the letter that I sent out a few weeks ago, you've, I, I said this then, and it's just very simply this, that our 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 practices of stewardship, our giving, our generosity, the things we do with money, is very often one of the best barometers for us discerning where our hearts are. Because we invest, in other words, we store our treasure in the places that we value. And what Jesus is urging us to do is to value the coming of God's kingdom, to care about his presence and what he's doing in the world and to find some realignment with him. Eugene Peterson says of this parable that greed is the nearly invisible sin. He says it's a tiny parasite that makes its home in the intestines of our relative wealth. And what Jesus wants to do in this parable is to invite us to sit with the barn builder for just a moment, for just a moment, and ask ourselves if we resonate with what he's doing or if we're rich toward God. Remember his wealth toward you as we pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these thoughts and as we resist these thoughts, that you would meet us and by your spirit, you would stir us up, move us out of those status quo places and help us to live in such a way with our wealth that we reflect the beauty and the glory of the image of the invisible God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The offering is a time when we think about God's wealth toward us, his love for us. We offer our hearts, our lives, our gifts to him as we do that.